but probably most importantly, it's great for mental health because it's this endogenous, healthy, adaptive source of dopamine, which ultimately resets our joy set point to the side of pleasure. However, as with anything that releases dopamine, either directly or indirectly, if we turn the volume up too high on that stimulus, we can turn it into a drug. So this gets into the overtraining syndrome, um, this, the, the general sort of exercise addiction um, that can happen when people essentially push too hard on the pain side of the balance. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, a founder of Mindset Rx and your host. And I believe if we're ever going to overcome non-serving behaviors, we have to learn to hack the role of dopamine. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay. That's part of the deal. It's how I responded. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you are going to be listening to a conversation between myself and Stanford psychiatrist and author, Dr. Anna Lemka. I read Anna's book, Dopamine Nation, after hearing her on the Modern Wisdom Podcast by Chris Williamson. Great podcast, but we're going to make this applicable to athletes. Her book is a really nice blend of neurochemistry, psychology, actionable steps, all the good stuff. And the situation that Anna outlies is, or lays out even, is this very dopamine-rich world. We are cacti in the rainforest, as Anna points out in the book. And dopamine is this neurotransmitter, and we'll get into what that means um, in a very kind of simple and easy way to understand, that is released when we anticipate reward, and it feels really good. And in modern society, in modern life, it's released a lot. What this does is it creates these addictive pathways to non-serving habits, but used in a really good way or a, a intentional way dopamine is this ridiculously useful tool to incorporate the conversation that we have talks around why are you addicted to comparison and the leaderboard how do you learn to put your phone down and stop get off the gram in other words and what role does dopamine play in your mental health loads more beside that too after this is released we are going to be releasing the debrief. And this is where we're going to boil down what Anna tells us, what we learn in this podcast, and also put our own twist on this for you as an athlete. And this is going to be released later in the week. So please make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss this. And also please refer us to a friend because I think we're awesome. Anna, firstly, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Let's start off with the obvious question. When someone asks you, what do you do? How do you define them? I'm a psychiatrist. My area of focus is addiction and co-occurring mental illness. I work in an academic treatment setting. So that means that I occupy the traditional three-legged stool of clinical care, teaching, and scholarly work. I see patients, I teach undergraduates, medical students, fellows, and um, I, I write and do research. 
Okay. Yeah, I was hoping to bring in the author piece because that's um, where I found out about you was through a fantastic podcast you did with Chris Williamson on um, Modern Wisdom. I think that's his podcast name. And yeah. really enjoyed it. I found it really interesting. And as I was listening, I was thinking about how this would apply to the people that we work with, which is, which who are athletes and their coaches and the kind of mm-hmm. fitness community. And when I was thinking about addiction with them and thinking it, Think as it think of it as in terms of non-serving behaviors that we do on a kind of loop. The things that came to mind were phone use and social media and comparison and what's called leaderboarding within our community. So constantly mm. rating yourself amongst the community. There's a reason that I call this addiction or I'm I'm thinking about it as addiction. I think it'd be useful to hear you define what addiction is though. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm fascinated to have this conversation because um, I think there is a lot um, that we can talk about in the field of um, competitive ath- athletics. So addiction is, broadly speaking, the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Um, when we're diagnosing addiction, we typically invoke the four C's, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences, as well as tolerance and withdrawal, which are manifestations of a physiologic change. So control is just what it sounds like using more of our drug or behavior. Um, And by the way, I use the term drug very broadly to encompass a whole bunch of different things, including social media. Um, Using more of our drug than we planned. Um, Compulsion is a level of automaticity um, and involuntariness um, in our use and a lot of mental preoccupation with use. Craving is um, physiologic urges to use that can be physical or mental and including intrusive thoughts of wanting to use unbidden. And then consequences are all of the um, relationship, work, uh, legal, moral, uh, health related consequences due to our use. Tolerance means needing more and more of a drug to um, to get an effect over time. And withdrawal is a classic physiologic syndrome when we reduce our drug consumption or we no longer have access. Thank you for that. The thing that works for me or the way that I most fall into this habit is phone use. Look, it's even it's even here right now. Yes, um, yeah. It's out there. It's easy to use the whole time. Um, and we often think of addiction, or I, th- I think it's socially known as this kind of the big things, right? We think of mm-hmm. um, hard drugs. We think of things like bigamy. We think of like all these very non, very destructive behavioral patterns. But it's also the things that are kind of a bit annoying and don't help us. And I know mm. I'd definitely be better and I'd be more effective if I had less of my phone in my life and mm-hmm. weren't so controlled by it. How comes this is something that applies to the big scale of the large problems and also the kind of the mediocre problems as well, the medium range problems? Well, I mean, we all have the same basic mental machinery when it comes to pleasure, motivation, and reward, right? And and this is the a part of the brain that's actually been identified called the reward circuit or the reward pathway. Uh, It encompasses a number of different areas in the brain, including the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, and the prefrontal cortex. Um, And it's essentially 
uh, a type of uh, brain circuitry that's been um, remained largely unchanged across millions of years of evolution and across species. So it's a highly conserved region of the brain. And it's what's allowed us to um, essentially adapt to a world of scarcity and ever-present danger over millions of years of evolution. It's what gets us to approach pleasure, generally speaking, and avoid pain. So when we're thinking about addiction to our phones versus, let's say, addiction to cannabis, the same mental machinery is being invoked. It's it's the uh, release of dopamine in this reward pathway, dopamine being our pleasure or reward neurotransmitter. The more dopamine that a substance or behavior releases, the more reinforcing that substance or behavior is. And then the more likely we are to want to repeat that behavior in order to recapture that feeling. Um, so, so the reason that we can get addicted to, to just about anything that releases dopamine is because again, it's, it's working on the same basic, uh, circuits in the brain. Okay. So I think it's good to outlay the kind of foundations of neurotransmitters and dopamine. What's a neurotransmitter? Neurotransmitter is a chemical in the brain that bridges the gap between neurons. Neurons are the workhorse cell of the brain. Um, and they're these long spindly cells that, um, work via electricity to create these circuits that make our emotions, our thoughts, everything that goes on in our heads. But neurons don't actually touch end to end. There's a little gap between them called the synapse. And the way that synapse is bridged is by molecules called neurotransmitters, which are released by the presynaptic neuron cross that, uh, that sort of empty space called the synapse and then bind to little receptors on the postsynaptic neuron one of the metaphors I sometimes use to describe this is imagine that the presynaptic neuron is a pitcher in a baseball game, the neurotransmitter is a ball, and the catcher with the mitt is uh, the postsynaptic neuron, the receptor being the mitt ready to catch that. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter, and it's intimately involved in the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is probably the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors. Thank you for that. And then when does, how does dopamine get released when we talk about, I don't know, the phone use, I think is something that we hear about dopamine quite a lot. What about when we are comparing ourselves to others and looking at a leaderboard and how we stack up to that? Why would that trigger dopamine? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, we are social creatures. We we've evolved over millions of years to, um, belong to a tribe and, that makes good sense again in a world of scarcity and ever present danger, because being part of group means that you're more likely to be able to shepherd scarce resources, find a mate, protect yourself from enemies. And one of the ways that uh, our brain and our gets us to want to connect with other people is essentially to release dopamine when we make those connections. So dopamine is released when other people like us when they agree with us, when they uh, praise us or regard us highly, uh, when we experience the same emotion as another person or many other people, uh, we get a, a hit of dopamine. Uh, so the leaderboard phenomenon is fits right into this whole uh, sort of the rewarding aspect of social connection. Um, when when other people praise our athletic accomplishments or um, you know, admire us based on our our ranking or our our athletic feats. You know that naturally releases dopamine. The actual 
athletic event itself is also a source of dopamine, but indirectly, and we can talk a little bit about that, but it's really the accolades from external others that is sort of that then direct dopamine uh, as we are socially um, affirmed, confirmed, praised, included, held up, regarded. The other interesting thing about dopamine is that it's probably very sensitive to enumeration. So when we give something a number, it becomes a, a pretty potent drug. And we see that in terms of how many likes we get, how many retweets we get when we play video games, what's our ranking in the video game. And all of that extrapolates directly to the leaderboard, enumerating or ranking people um, in terms of um, you know their athletic accomplishments and then seeing your ranking and seeing your ranking go up. That probably certainly releases dopamine. Seeing your ranking go down probably puts you in a dopamine deficit state and then drives the desire to work hard to get your ranking back up again. Yeah, that's something that I picked up whilst reading Dopamine Nation as well, was that randomness of reward. It's almost like when you refresh your email or you refresh social media and you don't know what post is going to be yeah. next. You don't know what's mm-hmm. going to come up next. So it either drives you to scroll further or spend more time or to swipe again, or it's that kind of that enjoyable dopamine releasing experience. So there's that that randomness there. How does exercise release dopamine or like what's the the role in dopamine there? Yeah. So this is um, a whole other angle that's certainly worth talking about for for your community. Uh, So if if you think about intoxicants, what they do is they go directly to the dopamine reward pathway and release huge amounts of dopamine instantaneously, followed by the brain adapting to that by downregulating dopamine transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels, putting us in a dopamine deficit state before we return to homeostasis or level level baseline. Um, but it turns out that doing things that are painful, like exercise, um, indirectly releases dopamine because exercise is directly noxious or toxic for cells. Uh, and when we exercise, what our body does is respond to that noxious injury by starting to upregulate our own endogenous production of dopamine and other feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones. So in other words, um, exercise can be a source of dopamine indirectly. So unlike an intoxicant, which directly releases dopamine without really any work, except the work to obtain the drug itself, what exercise does is that it essentially um, tells the body that we have an injury here And you need to, and by the way, I use that injury, that term injury, you know, as a descriptor, it's not really that we're injuring ourselves. There's reams and reams of evidence that exercise is good for us as long as not taken to an extreme. Um, But the signal to the body is that, oh boy, we need to um, repair. We need to upregulate dopamine and serotonin, our endogenous opioids, our endogenous cannabinoids. And so exercise slowly increases dopamine levels over the duration of the exercise. But the the really exciting thing is that those levels are then maintained um, for hours afterwards. And just stop for a moment and compare and contrast that with with intoxicants. So intoxicants, we get a sudden spike followed by neuroadaptation, which leads to not just baseline levels, but going below baseline, this dopamine deficit state, where we experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. Whereas painful stimuli like exercise 
cause a slow and steady increase in dopamine over the duration of the stimulus, followed by elevated levels hours afterwards, and then slowly decreasing back to baseline without that dopamine deficit state. So exercise in and of itself is a really healthy and adaptive way uh, to get your dopamine with some exceptions. And the exception is if we take a painful stimulus and we turn the volume way up on that stimulus, so we engage in incredibly painful, sudden, um, you know, let's say exercise or some form of pain that's, that's incredibly suddenly painful, like for example, cutting on ourselves, then that thing turns into essentially an intoxicant because what the body does is then immediately release huge amounts of dopamine in response to a signal that says my life is in danger. Um, for example, if you take a rat and you inject cocaine in that rat, and then you look at its brain under a microscope afterwards, you see this incredible, incredible arborization or expansion of um, dendrites in dopamine releasing neurons. And that's what you would expect, right? That's consistent with these sudden increase in dopamine levels. But if then you take a rat and you expose that rat to a very painful foot shock, it has to be intensely painful. And then you look at that rat's brain, you'll see an identical arborization in the reward pathway in response to that painful foot shock. In other words, extreme pain essentially becomes a drug. Okay. So how is this relevant to athletes? And by the way, I will wrap this around to the leaderboard thing, but it's going to, I need a little bit of a moment. What this means is that in general, engaging in athletics is great for your body. Like there's overwhelming evidence that it's, it's great cardiovascularly. It's great for so many physical parameters, but probably most importantly, it's great for mental health mm -hmm. because it's this endogenous, healthy, adaptive source of dopamine, which ultimately resets our joy set point to the side of pleasure. However, as with anything that releases dopamine, either directly or indirectly, if we turn the volume up too high on that stimulus, we can turn it into a drug. So this gets into the overtraining syndrome, um, just the, the general sort of exercise addiction um, that can happen when people essentially push too hard on the pain side of the balance. All right. Now, if we take all of that that's happening physiologically as a direct result of the athletic event, and now we contextualize it in our tribe. What you get is a kind of double-edged sword where assuming you're not engaging in, in, in exercise, that's too extreme. Assuming that you're engaging in adaptive and healthy amounts of exercise, and that's an adaptive and healthy source of dopamine, you can essentially adulterate that phenomenon with this leaderboard phenomenon where, where all of a sudden what was healthy and adaptive and is healthy and adaptive from a physical and mental point of view in terms of the sport itself becomes adulterated by the ways in which our sport is then contextualized in our tribe. I don't know if, if, if I'm making, if you're tracking that or I'm making much sense there, but, but essentially I think what can happen because I work with quite a few um, student athletes here at Stanford is that with time, so initially they're drawn to the sport because of the joy of the sport itself. Um, and that joy is again, that, that feel that the joy of winning or just the joy of the, the movement itself. And also the good, the good feeling dopamine that you get, get from it, that, that can last a pretty long time in the, in the day afterward, in that day after the, the engagement. 
But over time, um, that that good feeling can kind of be eroded by the ways in which that athletic ac- accomplishment essentially becomes a drug in the sense that um, it, it becomes a way to rank yourself or it becomes the core and only part of your identity or it becomes addictive in that you're constantly checking the leaderboard, getting us away from the healthy, um, you know, fun, adaptive aspects of the sport and miring us really in this obsessive preoccupation with our rankings, with external accomplishments and accolades, um, which ultimately, you know, no matter what we accomplish, be, just like with any drug, we develop tolerance to it where it's no longer enough. No matter how much you know we win gold medals at the Olympics, eventually, um, even that won't be rewarding because that's essentially a drug. That is fascinating. And I think you've described the journey of so many athletes who will listen to this. They start, and most of the people who listen to this will be CrossFit athletes of kind of a decent level, um, but we get a bunch of other people listening to. And it's so common to start CrossFit, figure out you're pretty good at it, start competing at local competitions, start competing at international competitions, so the Open, and then you get ranking you start ranking yourself and you complete a workout and you refresh the leaderboard over and over again. You see where you rank, you start sharing it in the social thing. You start comparing yourself to the other people and it enters this place where I don't even enjoy training anymore, Mm -hmm. but I'm doing it out of an obligation. I I suppose it probably comes down to security around identity. It's like, this is who I've said I am to the rest of the tribe. So this is who I have to be for them um, and not assessing why they're using it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that trajectory is just almost exactly the trajectory that we see with addiction to almost any drug or behavior. It starts out for fun or because it solves a problem over time, we need more and more to get the same effect and the drug stops working. But then when we stop it, we enter this painful state, this dopamine deficit state, which when it comes to exercise actually is a physical withdrawal from the sport itself, but it's also obviously the mental despair of not, not knowing who we are without the identity, you know, of our sports persona. And I think the, the trick there is to, first of all, recognize that, that that cycle is an addictive cycle and that we can get caught up in it. And then essentially, you know, what I recommend in in my book, Dopamine Nation, uh, for really any addiction is to start with a dopamine fast from the drug itself. And I just really want to emphasize that um, that this, this can mean for athletes caught in this loop doesn't mean that you abstain from your sport necessarily. Sometimes if you're actually addicted to the sport, uh, you know, that, that is the right, the right move, a period of time away from it. But very often it's not the sport itself. It's all of the metaverse aspects of the sport. So it's really abstaining from the metaverse uh, for a long enough period of time to get perspective because perspective is the key. And that might mean not being on social media for a month, not checking any rankings for a month, not looking at any interviews of yourself or other people for a month. So no engagement in in the kind of like, um, you know, social media aspect of the sport and trying to get back to the pure joy of the sport itself, trying to remember, okay, why do I, why did I get into this in the first place? You know, what do I love about it? What does it do for me, you know, physically and mentally when it's just 
me in my process. It's not my sport for these external kinds of rewards. There's so much that I want to pull out that you said about five or six things that I could jump off on and and start there. Um, One of the things that I find very interesting is how easy it is to rationalize these decisions. Like my phone, for example, it's very easy to say, oh, well, I've got Slack on there. I need to keep my team updated or I need to stay in touch with the community. And because I, I work in the community and I have friends there, it's my social connection. It's a way to kind of reinforce that identity again. And um, there's so many things there and leaderboarding as well. It, you end up thinking, well, I've got to know where so-and-so is because that gives me a competitive advantage. It doesn't change the output or it doesn't change your input. It doesn't change what you do, but it becomes this kind of pseudo-logical way of addressing it and to give yourself reasons. I suppose the question I want to know is why do, why do we do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, those kinds of intrusive thoughts and rationalizations for picking up the phone and re-engaging, you know, in the social media community, even when we've committed to a period of absence, that is essentially craving. Those are the stories that our brain makes up in order to get us to do the drug. Because as I talk about in the book, pleasure and pain are co-located and they work like a balance. When we do something pleasurable, the balance tilts to the side of pleasure. When we do something painful, it tilts to the side of pain. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And it will work very hard to regain homeostasis with any deviation from neutrality. So when we look on a leaderboard and we see, you know, oh, I, my ranking went up, we get a little release of dopamine and the pleasure pain balance tips to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that done that than our brain adapts by downregulating dopamine and I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off right when it's level. They stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's the come down, the after effect, the craving, the intrusive thoughts telling me, oh, I, I really have to get back on because I have to do X, Y, and Z. Because if I don't do that, this horrible thing will happen. That is our pleasure pain balance tilted to the side of pain. The other thing about uh, the way that this pleasure pain balance works is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar drug or stimulus, that initial pleasure response gets weaker and shorter, but the after response gets stronger and longer. So the gremlins get bigger. They get more numerous. Pretty soon they're camped out there. They've got their tents. They've got their barbecues until they're living there. And then we end up in this chronic dopamine deficit state where nothing else is enjoyable We need to keep checking the leaderboard, not to feel good, but just to feel normal. And when we're not, we've got a balance tilted to the side of pain and we're in withdrawal. So when you make a commitment to abstain from your phone, for example, and from checking the leaderboard for a day, let's say, uh, you know, usually I recommend longer than that, but at least a day, what you will find is that the first half of that day, you will be filled with intrusive thoughts of why you should check it. That's withdrawal. That's the gremlins bouncing up and down on the pain side of your balance, trying to get you to do the drug again because they they like it there. They they wanna they wanna fight with you over. That's the same thing a person who's trying to quit smoking feels when they're thinking about oh I I, I want to smoke a cigarette. I want to smoke a cigarette. So once we realize that that's withdrawal and we just slow it down, take a breath, and say okay, I can wait this out. The feeling will pass. It has in the moment. Um, it has the intensity of like being infinite and that there's only one solution, but it really will pass. And the longer you go without checking, 
the, the more those thoughts dissipate until people actually get to a point where they're not even thinking about the phone anymore. They're not thinking about the leaderboard. And then there's expansion. There's this kind of freedom that happens where you're no longer sort of connected to the device and those inputs in, in the same kind of way. In my experience, frankly, it takes about a month or 30 days abstaining to really get to that place of freedom. But I think even a day of not checking can be a, a useful experiment. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now let's get on with the show. The deepest set triggers for me in to do anything that I suppose borders the addictive are emotions. When mm-hmm. I really drill down to it, yeah, I can be in a certain place and I can be doing a certain thing, but I changed I've over the last well, four years especially, I've trained I changed my environment frequently. I've done things mm-hmm. to move things. But the f- the emotions like fear of incompetence or um yeah, that's the, that's the big one. Is the biggest driver to kind of go, okay, right, I'm going to stop doing the thing that confronts that fear and pick yeah. up a much better or a much, <laughs> I say better, um, a much more immediate response to that and, and use that. Why are we doing that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I assume that when you check the leaderboard that you're, you do well there. So that's then a source of dopamine for you, right? So that's yep. a way you can then, because, and, and, and people do that in all kinds of ways. Like they, you know, you check the leaderboard, other people may, may, may Google themselves. Other people may, you know, check their text or social media, looking for some kind of positive input. Some people who are, uh, you know, above average, good looking may look in the mirror and, and get confidence from that. Um, but basically, you know, that's essentially your drug, right? And you're using it to distract yourself from painful feelings, thoughts, and emotions um, in the moment that that you don't really want to deal with. But the, the problem is that no matter how far you run from those painful thoughts and emotions, they will run far farther and they will run faster and they will eventually kept up, catch up with you. Furthermore, no matter what your drug is and how well it works, after a while, it will stop working. It may take, in some cases, just a couple weeks. In other cases, it may take a couple decades. But I guarantee you, whatever your drug is, whether it's cannabis or whether it's leaderboards, it will stop working. And then you will have a very serious problem on your hands. Because number one, it won't solve that other problem You know that, that you originally, uh, that sense of incompetence as you were talking about around other things. And uh, by then, you know, you'll be, you'll be addicted and, and it, it may even cause the opposite problem where it makes you anxious. I've seen that again and again, where a drug that was this old friend that helped with anxiety or whatever the feeling was stops working, but then actually makes that original feeling worse again, because the brain adapts those gremlins hop on the pain side of balance. So much better. First of all, it sounds like you're mindfully aware of this pattern, which is like so great and really half the battle. Um, and now what you need to do is really just steal yourself in those moments of wanting to kind of run away from uncomfortable feelings by 
getting a little hit of dopamine by checking your leaderboard by just simply not doing that. And instead, number one, um, just letting yourself tolerate those uncomfortable emotions and also learning to observe that they will pass. Again, this is, I think, something that um, that I can't be emphasized enough. There's an there's a interminableness to the feelings, bad feelings, like this is never going to go away. And the only thing that will make this better is for me to use my drug. But really, it does, it does go away. Um, it, it sort of ebbs and flows like the tide. And it's very important for us to have that experience of dissipation without our having done anything to make it dissipate. There's so much that is driven by our physiology alone. We we have the illusion that we are making this or that happen, but very often it's just like narratives that we make up to explain our physiology. So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing, you know, as I talk about in the book is that um, one of the best antidotes to to uncomfortable feelings is to actually do something that's hard. Um, so to press, you know, intentionally press on that pain side of the balance in order to get those neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pleasure side and change our hedonic set point to the side of pleasure rather than the side of pain. You know, I've always thought of narratives as a, a way to, as, as a way to explain external situations as a way to say, okay, this is what's happening, but I've never thought of them as a way to explain physiology. And that's a really mm. interesting nuanced perspective on it because the effect of the environment and the external situation is the physiology. And that's what you're reacting to. That's right. And especially when it comes to compulsive overconsumption and addiction, we have the feeling in that moment of craving that there's such a good reason that we need to use our drug and our brain can like create this reason and this narrative in an instant, really like a nanosecond. But in truth, all that's going on is that we're in a dopamine deficit state, we're craving. And if we would just wait and not reflexively respond to that physiologic urge, our, our pleasure pain balance will reset itself. Cool. Okay. There's again, there's a bunch of points that I wanted to, to jump off there. Um, have we normalized taking drugs or taking, yeah, taking drugs in response to physio, phys, psychological and physiological pain? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, sort of a feel good drug for every ill is the uh, sort of the sort of cornerstone of modern thinking, this idea that Number one, there should be a pill out there or a behavior or something to take away this feeling. And number two, um, I should use it. Mm. <laughs> uh, there's even, you know, a fear of pain and suffering, this idea that pain is bad for us, that if we endure pain, it's going to set us up for future pain. We're going to end up with a psychic scar. We're going to have PTSD. This is, you know, really just a, a modern Western and very, frankly, very American way. Uh, to conceptualize pain because for thousands of years, many cultures have thought of pain as something um, useful and salutary and meaningful. And I think, um, I, I believe that most forms of pain can be that. Um, so we've really moved far away from that notion. Mm, that rings so true. You draw the analogy and dopamination of a cactus in a rainforest. Like there's so much freely available dopamine, and there's so many ways to um, satiate yourself. What do you What do you mean by this? Yeah. So the cactus in the rainforest analogy is this idea that we are cacti in the rainforest. That our brains evolved over millions of years for a world of scarcity and danger, not for this world of overwhelming abundance. 
And our primitive wiring is woefully mismatched for the modern ecosystem where we have at the touch of a finger, really everything we could ever want and more. So it's not even just that we have our basic survival needs met. It's that technology has allowed us to amp up every single type of uh, rewarding substance or behavior we could ever want, make it more potent, make it more novel, make it more ubiquitous, make it more available, um, such that we're, we're really drowning in dopamine. You spoke just previously about how it's a relatively modern situation that we we find ourselves in, and it therefore makes sense to look to solutions that were found maybe before that it was so before dopamine sources were so prevalent. The guests either side of you on the show are going to be a Stoic practitioner and mm-hmm. a a, um, a Buddhist, um, a Buddhist nice. monk, and. This seems like the meditation and a philosophy for dealing with suffering alongside of that and discomfort and pain are two kind of essential tools, but we find ourselves pulled away from that to the convenient instead, rather than dealing with them. Why, why do you think we're doing that? Well, I think we're doing it in part because we, you know, one of the biggest risk factors for addiction is just simple access to drugs and we're surrounded by them and and we're, you know, we're creatures of, uh, the path of least resistance. We're creatures of habit. We're, you know, we, we live in a hyper-convenient world. And, and in this world, you know, because of our primitive wiring, which designed us to approach pleasure and avoid pain, that's instinctive. It's natural. It's basically good to do that. We're naturally drawn to any number of these feel-good substances and behaviors. So it's really a part of the Anthropocene. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's a term to describe the unprecedented time in which we live, which is a time in which human activity has changed the planet. The the most common example of the Anthropocene is climate change. But I think dopamine nation or a drugified ecosystem is, is another really pressing example of the Anthropocene that we've essentially through technology, innovation, ingenuity, and striving created this world of overabundant, highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors and the result is that, you know, we're all more miserable. I mean, that's the great paradox and irony of it. So the solution, um, I, I actually hold up people with addiction, with severe addiction in recovery as modern day prophets. I think Buddhism is a great source of wisdom, stoicism, wonderful too. But I really look to people in recovery who have, you know, despite their increased vulnerability to the problem of addiction, they've managed to figure it out in this crazy mixed up world. And so I think they're a great source of wisdom as well, um, because, I mean, if they can get it together, you know, in a world where everything become, has become drugified, then surely, you know, the rest of us can. Yeah, it's interesting that the richer the com- yeah, country, the more prevalent this is. Like, there's, um, I'm sure you've seen the studies around Bhutan being the happiest country in the world, despite having one of the lowest um, or the, the, I suppose, poorest economies out of all of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what's really compelling. You know, I mean, when you look at large epidemiologic studies like happiness surveys, a happiness survey found that people living in the United States were um, less happy in 2018 than they were in 2008. And that was true for many other developed nations. If you look at rates of depression, they've increased 50% worldwide in the last three decades with the highest rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide in the richest nations. So it's very clear that there's something happening in rich nations 
that despite all of our, you know, advancement in understanding mental health problems, destigmatizing mental health problems, medications and other treatments for mental health problems, um, we're more mentally ill than ever before. And so I think it's important that we um, look at, you know, the problem of overabundance and the ways in which overabundance is probably contributing to our unhappiness. And, and Dopamine Nation really is all about trying to explore that. Why is it uh, that given everything we ever wanted and more, uh, we are we are more unhappy? And I think the neuroscience of addiction and the pleasure pain balance really explains that. In Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl brings up the concept that suffering acts like a gas and it kind of fills the space that you allot it. And it seems like evolutionarily we have a space for the suffering that's there and we don't fill it and instead we fill it fill it with convenience or try to um reduce its effect through convenience yeah i love uh, victor frankl's book man's search for meaning I and mean, to me what what what's so powerful about what he writes about is that um, for, first of all, I mean, he also validates a truism that almost every religion and major philosophy and psychology will validate, which is that life is suffering. Um, and no matter what you do, there will be suffering. But what he says is that we can actually find meaning and purpose in our suffering. I mean, I think that that's really um, the powerful tool. Furthermore, as we try to escape or numb or run away from our suffering, um, I think we also run away from any sense of meaning and purpose. And I think that the purposelessness of our modern existence is really ultimately the source of so much suffering, right? Um, where people feel quite untethered to their existence and, and quite unsure why they're even here. Um, and, and that then leads to depression and, and suicide. So I think we really need to change our whole orientation on sort of what we expect of life, um, how life should be lived, what 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 we should be aiming for, um, and also how we find purpose and meaning. The only way I can relate to this is through my own personal experiences, but thinking about when I felt most connected to something and when I've kind of found meaning it's when I'm doing something very difficult. When I mm. was um, setting up this business that with, on the podcast of which we're talking, mm. or when I was um, joining the military and I just had a mm -hmm. very clear purpose, and or even overcoming relationship difficulties with my fiance, like it was full of difficulty and full of suffering, mm. but there was no victimhood associated with it or there was no kind of yeah there's no woe is me but there's also very much like okay this is a thing that i want to achieve a kind of objective mm -hmm. that i want to move beyond and it it gave me enough suffering to ameliorate uh, sorry it gave me enough meaning to ameliorate the suffering right right so powerful thank you for sharing that yeah i mean we are strivers right we, we are we are wired to strive um, and when we can find something to strive for that has a meaning and a purpose experientially day to day in the process, that that's, that's the best, right? Mm -hmm. That's great. And people are, it's going to be a little bit different. This is Victor Frankl's other main point. It's like, there's not one secret key that unlocks, 
you know, the mystery door of life, it's going to be different for every person. Like for some people, they're going to get their sense of meaning and purpose, you know, in a relationship for others, it'll be founding a business. Um, For others, it'll be some kind of athletic endeavor. And, you know, for you, it's all three of those things mix and match. But the point is that, that you are happiest when you are striving, not when things come easily. And so I think that's really, um, really good, except that we want to make sure that we don't, uh, we don't strive for the wrong things. Like being, being addicted to things actually um, is a lot of hard work (laughs) and requires an enormous amount of time and and tenacity and perseverance. But the end goal is, is not the right goal, right? Because the end goal there is to really distract ourselves from ourselves, from our lives, um, to escape uh, the search for meaning and purpose what we need to do is turn away from from that escapist kind of mentality and really try to be in our life, find meaning and purpose in the life that we were given. Um, If it seems boring or meaningless, um, we don't run away from it. We need to look closer, invest more, dive deeper, find some nugget in there that's worth fighting for. I already told you this before we started recording, which, um, which is that I found your book particularly useful because it covered the theoretical and physical background of it but also the application and a kind of a psychological personal subjective lens of it as well and i think a big part of that was the identification of truth as the Mm. ultimate goal and seeing the world as truthfully and not even objectively but because your subjective experience comes into that too but as truthfully as possible and as i was reading this there's like so many examples that came to mind but one of them was this was the Jung quote of until you make the unconscious conscious, it will dictate Mm. your life and you'll call it fate. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think about, there's been times when I've been doing things that made me run up against the wall time and time and time again. And with athletes, we see it as well. They kind of, they, they repeat behaviors that, that push them to a place that they do not like, and they don't understand why. And then when you find it, there's that, complete release of emotion Mm. or there's the Mm -hmm. oh that's what it was and one particular event that I was thinking of it completely shattered me at the time but it opened me up to a whole new world um I suppose what was it can you share sorry guys you are not going to get the juicy gossip from myself right here I'm going to cut this bit out just because it's a bit kind of personal close to the bone and not really the type of thing that I want to share on a podcast so I told Anna you guys aren't going to get find out, but um, let's just say it was one of those things that seems earth shattering at the time, but entirely obvious in retrospect. But it's really important that we dig down and find these things. Anyway, let's get back to the interview. When that came to light, and when I can, there's I can't remember what happened is a few years ago, but when that came to light, I just remember this. Oh, that makes so much sense, and mm. because it was more truthful than anything else that had. than anything else I'd found to explain it at that point. Nice. Right. So you had been sort of weaving a narrative that was Mm. not as close to the real truth of things as, as you could get. And when you saw the, saw the truth of it and kind of reshaped your narrative, that was a release for you and it was more helpful. Yeah. And the reason I I bring that up isn't just for, (laughs) for, for me to have some airtime and and give myself a chance to go on one way rambling monologues but i think it's because (laughs) there's we don't realize how much of a role these stories play in 
our lives. Yeah. How do you go about identifying truth in this? How do you look for truth in a world that is quite easy to cover it up in? Well, uh, the first thing that I try hard to do, and I'm not always successful, but I try to tell the truth um, about things large and small. And I talk about that in the book because radical honesty. Um, you know, there. Are, so the average person tells one to two lies per day. We're, we're just naturally lying machines. We cover up stuff that makes us look bad or incompetent or whatever, selfish. So I try really hard to to tell the truth. I don't always succeed. Um, you know, there are sort of lies of omission that come in here and there and other things, but I, I try hard to tell the truth because when we are telling things as they really are, they can no longer uh, remain sort of lies within our own minds, right? So in telling other people the truth as close as we can, it also, it comes into our awareness. It's this Jungian quote, like the Jungian quote, it comes out of the unconscious recesses and it becomes more conscious. Conscious. The other thing that I think is really helpful is if you're in relationship with other people, uh, relationships where there is enough trust and regard where we can hear the hard truth from that person without, you know, feeling like they're going to abandon us or we need to abandon them. So there has to be that trust there to be able to, you know, have a, a loved one tell us like this, you're doing this thing, or I have observed this, or I don't think this is good, or you hurt me when you did this. And, and then to really listen to that and really absorb it without reflexively, def you know, defending ourselves um, and think about it and think about the ways that we can better ourselves. Um, so I think this kind of accountability to ourselves, to others, through radical truth telling, and just through sort of like a, a moral stance of trying to figure out what the truth is, like a, that as sort of a fundamental approach to life, wanting to know the truth, even when it's painful, because the truth will allow us to tell truer stories about ourselves which also then shapes future behavior, right? Because if we see always see ourselves as, as victims of other people's injuries, we, we'll probably continue to be victims. Whereas if we can acknowledge the, the role that we've played and what we've contributed to the problem, we're much more likely uh, to stop doing that behavior going forward. So linked into this as well is the idea of shame. Um, mm -hmm. one of the first guests that we had in this podcast, he talked about how he goes through benign shaming of himself, um, that he thinks, what would I think if this behavior was displayed to the world? And mm -hmm. to me, there's this kind of, there's this rally against shame at the moment, that shame shouldn't exist and it serves no purpose. But I, I don't know about you, but the way I see it is that if it evolved, then it's probably there for a reason. It serves mm -hmm. some sort of purpose. Otherwise it would have left us years and years and years. Oh ago. yeah. I mean, shame is, is probably the most pro-social emotion that we have. We experience shame when our behavior has deviated from group norms and um, in a very primitive sense, when we're, if, and when we're discovered in our behavior, uh, we, we reflexively become terrified of abandonment that will be basically kicked out of the group. Um, and so the future avoidance of the pain of feeling shame is what gets us to adhere to the rules of the tribe. So a super important emotion, a really painful emotion, and people will go to great lengths to avoid experiencing shame. Um, one of the ways to do that, again, is to, 
to follow the rules or to adhere to group norms. But the other way is to lie about um, our, our conduct um, in order to avoid the experience of shame. So the exercise that your, your prior guest uh, engaged in is an interesting one because it sounds like what he's doing is a Duncan experiment where he forces himself to experience shame as a way to, as essentially as a deterrent, because shame is a huge deterrent for repeating that type of behavior going forward. Shame is a consequence and a painful one. And if we uh, tell the truth and experience shame as a consequence of that, as painful as it may be, we're more likely to be able to change that behavior. Whereas if we hide our behavior uh, then the shame can multiply and also the behavior doesn't change. So shame is shame is uh, really important and obviously um, super integral to the perpetuation of shameful behavior as long as we continue to, to hide that behavior and uh, fear the risk of being shunned. There's, again, a lot that I'd like to dig into there, but I think the best use of the kind of the final 10 minutes or so that we've got is to discuss your acronym dopamine um, and the the process that we go through. And I'm, I'm going to read out one point at a time um, and then we can go through there. So the, the first point is data. Um, why is that the first step that we need to go through in overcoming these addictions and our relationship with dopamine? Yeah, data is where we just totally honest with ourselves and others about what we're doing, what we're using, what drug, how much, how often. And again, it's a way of get, getting our use out of the unconscious and into the conscious, out of the recesses of denial and into the actualized awareness. I've had so many patients who just in telling me what they're doing and how often will stop midstream and go, oh my gosh, I hadn't realized it was that bad. So that's what that data is about. And then objectives. Objectives is where we think about why we use. There's almost always a good reason. I mean, in many ways, in many ways, these drugs are initially quite adaptive. The problem is that in the long run, they're not because they stop working and they cause other problems. But you know, whether it's for fun or to solve a problem and what problem that is, it's good to think about uh, what the objective of use is. Okay. So if we're thinking about social media use, it would be start by tracking how much you're using your phone, maybe. Um, yeah, track and- exactly what you're using, how often you're using, and then why, what it does for you. Yeah. And in your case, as you you know generously described, it sort of picks you up when you're feeling self-doubt mm-hmm. and sort of reaffirms your confidence. Yeah. And then problems is the uh, the one after that. Yeah, problems is the, the bad stuff that results as a consequence of your use. And sometimes we don't see it when we're chasing dopamine. We almost never see the full impact of our mm-hmm. drug use, but maybe other people have told us. Maybe the consequence simply is that um, people who care about us say, hey, I'm worried about you, even if we don't see a consequence. But other consequences can be work, school, sleep, health, uh, moral consequences, acting in ways that are not consistent with our values. I suppose that pulls into the the, uh, the truth part of this. It's like identifying what is the most objective view of this. And that's then right. abstinence is the next one. Yeah, so that's the the abstinence trial of uh, a period of time away from our drug of choice to allow those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so homeostasis can be restored. Um, it's also true that abstinence allows us to look back at our use and see true cause and effect, which is hard when we're in our addiction. I usually recommend 30 days of abstinence because that's the minimum amount of time it takes to fully 
restore homeostasis. And I say the minimum because in some people it can take a lot longer, but even if you're not willing to do the full 30 days, you know, at least a day uh, is not, is a good way to sort of um, test the waters. And then I suppose the next piece mindfulness fits into that really nicely. Yeah. Mindfulness is where, you know, when we first abstain, we feel worse before we feel better. It's the balance tipping to the side of pain. We experience withdrawal and just learning to tolerate and sit with our suffering and watch it ebb and flow is a really important skill. And then insight. Yeah. Insight is where I've had many patients say to me that it wasn't really until they tried the dopamine fast or did the dopamine fast that they realized that they were addicted because let's say they went into withdrawal that they hadn't anticipated or it was a lot harder than they thought it would be. Or when they got to 30 days, they felt so much better. They hadn't realized how much their drug was adversely impacting their lives. So insight is huge. And then next steps. Next steps is when people come back after the dopamine fast. And we kind of talk about the pros and cons and we talk about what to do next. Do you want to continue to abstain or do you want to go back to using uh, your drug of choice? And almost always people want to go back to using, but they want to use less. So then we talk about what will moderation look like. And that really gets into the details. How will you track it? How often will you use? What days of the week? How much? How long? Because if we don't really specify, we're liable to get away from it. Even if we do, many people who go back to try to use in moderation are not able to, and then ultimately have to um, sort of come to abstinence. But if I push abstinence too much, especially in young people, it doesn't really work. I have to let folks sort of come to it on on their own. And finally, experiment. Yeah, experiment is just that the whole thing is an experiment. Life is one big experiment. One of the best ways to understand biological systems is to change something in that system and see what happens. Hence, the dopamine fast or the abstinence trial is a great way to understand each of our own biological systems, um, which allows us to get good data to make informed decisions going forward. One of the things I love about the dopamine fast is that after people do the experiment, especially if they feel better, and about 80% of my patients feel better just by eliminating their drug of choice for a month, then they're motivated to continue to explore that path. I don't, I no longer have to persuade them that giving up cannabis or leaderboards or, uh, you know, uh, alcohol or video games is worth it. They, they felt themselves that it's worth it. And then, so it's a continual fine tuning of that process. Thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you for your time. Where can people find, I can see a ti- for me, a tiny copy of Dopamine Nation and just over yeah, your right, that's right. shoulder. That's, yeah. I mean, to learn more, read Dopamine Nation. Um, I don't, I'm not on social media. It's one of the self-binding strategies that yes. I implement uh, that I don't even go on there because I like, like you and the leaderboards, I, I can't really manage it well. And I'm happier when I'm not on something I've discovered through trial and error. So um I'm not available that way, but I'm available through my writing and through these podcasts. It's been great to talk to you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm Tom Foxley. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete podcast. Following this episode, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be releasing the debrief. And that's a summary of the key points in this brilliant episode with Dr. Anna Lemke and our own subtle twist on this to apply it to your training and your wider life. It's super practical, super applicable. So in light of that, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you can start growing the mindset of a limitless athlete and 
don't forget to tell your friends because, well, it makes me feel good and you'll probably help your friends out a bunch too. For further mindset training resources and tools, head to MindsetRx.com or find us on Instagram by searching for MindsetRx. That's Mindset R-X-D. Next week, I'm going to be talking to a special forces soldier who has started a movement around doing one incredibly difficult thing, and it's a cracker.